We're number one. We're number one on where the money is. We're number one, Joel. Not number one. No, not in soccer. I think Argentina and Netherlands should just quit after seeing Germany just completely demolish them yeah, no uh, yesterday in the host nation. I'm cheering for Germany. I was wearing my jersey yesterday. Yeah, actually, the, before it started, you, you called out Germany as your favorite team to win. Yeah. But that was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> was it four goals in six minutes? I went to get water and I came back and there's three goals scored. <laughs> I thought it was just replays over and over and over again. Unbelievable. But yeah, we'll see. But for the purposes of our show, we are number one apparently. And that's with regards to crude oil and natural gas liquids production. Overtaking Saudi Arabia, the IEA says we should keep that ranking until at least 2030 uh, due to you know production out of the Bakken, production out of the Eagle Ford. Right now, we're producing over 11 million barrels per day in the first quarter of this year, though we're still importing 7.5 million barrels per day of crude oil. Mm-hmm. Why are people talking about crude exports? I don't know. But this is a big boost to our economy as annual spending is right around $200 billion. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to know that you are the largest oil producer now. Everybody always is focused on Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and how they've been the largest producer for so long. Now we're number one in natural gas. We're number one in oil. And what I really like about this is, could we eventually become the swing producer? And what that means is, will our actual production start dictating some of the prices? Mm-hmm. Right now, that's not the case. We don't have that kind of power. Uh, we, don't, we don't have enough production, really. So you're, you're seeing the WTI Brent pricing um, staying pretty, at pretty high levels. Yeah. If more of our uh, production comes online, it's really not affecting the actual price of oil. So that's why you're not seeing, you know, although we're producing such a large amount of oil, we're not seeing cheaper gas prices because it is an international pricing scheme and if we could get to that swing producer level i think we could actually start moving the price down if um, if we can continue the growth uh what i also thought it was interesting about this article was they're looking at 2019 uh, the eia was or the iea was saying that uh, around that time we're going to start plateauing I don't really think that's the case either. I mean, if you look at just a couple companies, uh, Pioneer Natural Resources, just in one play in their Sprawberry Wolf Camp, this is just one layer of rock in the Permian Basin. Just that company alone has billions of barrels of oil um, and resources. ConocoPhillips, the same thing. I mean, these are just two producers Mm -hmm. of many. So I don't think our production's really going to plateau. We've shown over the last few years we can get a lot more in less space. So I don't really see that being the case. And... I think we can still keep growing throughout the 2020s, and I think we can eventually make that swing producer. Yeah, I agree. And you, look, you talk about gas prices. Before I talk about that, I want to give the article headline. I forgot to do that right off the top. For our listeners, not our viewers, that's from Bloomberg. It's U.S. seen as biggest oil producer after overtaking Saudi Arabia. Okay, back to the conversation. Gas prices, highest 4th of July gas price apparently since 2008, according to AAA. So even though we are producing all this oil, you're right. Saudi Arabia and OPEC still really has command over mm-hmm. pricing, uh, although you see WTI still creeping up towards Brent. Um, so one day, hopefully, we'll have excess capacity where we'll be able to turn some on, turn some off, if we see fit like Saudi Arabia can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. Hopefully, we can get there uh, sooner than later. Yeah. The way we're going, you know, that hockey stick growth is still, is still going. Yeah, we're clearly there already with natural gas. Companies are just sitting on acreage, but uh, everyone that has oil is, is drilling for it right now. So we'll see if, if we can tap into that Sprayberry and Wolf Camp and, and really sit on that and hope prices can fall. Uh, turn to our next headline. Moving towards uh, materials a little bit, mm-hmm. Australia's big three miners 
look to tighten their iron grip. That's from the Financial Times. Uh, I think this is an important topic to talk about a little bit on the commodity side. Something you don't see necessarily in oil right now is the supply and demand balance. There's plenty of demand for the amount of supply on oil, but Mm -hmm. for some of these materials like iron ore, the demand has really evaporated after China has started to slow on its internal growth uh, on the infrastructure side. So you saw miners from Vale to BHP Billiton uh, just go out there and start producing and mining and spending billions of dollars on projects that are no longer really needed because they overspent. Mm -hmm. Now there's an oversupply situation. Mm -hmm. And these commodity markets are self-correcting. Unfortunately, those fringe players are typically the ones that get hurt the most because they're the higher cost producers. You look at the big Australian companies, they're producing uh, this iron ore for about $30 to $40 a ton. Vale out of Brazil is about $76 a ton. I bought them in my real money portfolio for the fool, thinking that iron ore would have hit the bottom. That's not the case. That keeps dropping. It keeps dropping. It's still... Around $90, $95. So you're looking at Vale still producing at around a $20 per ton profit, Mm -hmm. but not nearly as well as these Australian producers. So you're seeing production cutbacks. And that's one thing I think investors need to look at when they're getting into these smaller miners, not just in iron, but you saw gold miners take huge write downs Mm -hmm. on projects that they started. And uh, aluminum, Alcoa finally reversing course because they made the necessary cuts before their peers and they're a low cost producer. So they realized it early took action, and now they've been a really top performer uh, since middle of last year. Uh, the price of aluminum hasn't hurt them since it's been rising, but uh, the fact that they, their CEO, Klaus Kleinfeld, took necessary action, they're back on track. Yeah, I, I mean, you have to look at all these commodities. There are always going to be needed, so you have to look at the low-cost producers. And if you're investing in one of the smaller companies, they don't have the scale to drop right. prices. Um, so if you're looking at $95 a ton, you need the Rio Tentos and the BHP Biltons that can produce at $44 to $53 level because there's a lot of margin there. Um, what it really takes is just, just like coal companies, you have to look at the, the companies that can produce at the cheapest level, and you also have to look at companies that have solid balance sheets because you will have, I mean, these are all volatile markets. Mm-hmm. You're going to have your peaks and your troughs. So you need companies that can easily withstand uh, you know, low pricing. Right. And BHP and Rio, yeah, uh, they're producing right now. What they, You don't have to worry about them as investors going out of business, obviously. Yeah, clearly not. But what they can do is just turn off actually distributing cash to shareholders. You know, maybe they don't grow their dividend for a few years mm-hmm. until prices increase. And that's what big companies that are low-cost producers can do, where smaller companies are worrying about paying their bills or, or just going out of business. Yeah, you saw Cliff's Natural Resource really take a hit in the market last year when they tr- cut their dividend because of iron ore and coal. So it does happen, uh, which is why investors might not want to be so tied to the dividends of these companies and realize that if a company trims its dividend, that's not necessarily always a bad thing. You're still going to have that shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And once they reverse course, and these markets are mean reverting, so the dividend was likely to come back as long as the company you invested in is managed properly. So that's just something for people to think about when investing in uh, these natural resource companies, mm-hmm. materials especially, because mining Absolutely. is so uh, capital intensive. To our final headline, we turn Let's to the Oil and Gas Financial Journal. Uh, we're talking about shale, maybe another couple countries competing with the U.S. on shale. Mm-hmm. Obviously not right away, but uh, according to Oil and Gas Financial Journal, outside of North America, Argentina is They're the next. best place to develop its shale resources. 
And so what they basically did, Accenture pointed out that it's not always the size of the reserves in the basin that really matter for development. China has tons of reserves. Argentina, tons of reserves. Mm-hmm. But you need, you need resources, you need water, you need land availability, population density. Takes it, got to take that into account. One of the main reasons why Europe and the UK in particular really haven't been quick to develop their shale assets because their populations are so closely um, combined, whereas the United States... Most of our shale is developed in the Midwest where a lot of the population doesn't reside in Texas. So uh, we're kind of lucky in, in that aspect. China, very scarce on water yep. where it's shale resource. Re- re- what's that? Tough terrain as well. Tough terrain as well. No pipelines really there. You have companies in the United States that have more pipelines than the entire country of China. So you turn to that and you look at Argentina. Started to develop a little bit with YPF, their, their national company there. Nationalized some assets from Repsol. A lot of fighting there over the last few years, and mm-hmm. companies were kind of hesitant to get back in. But Chevron, it, they're leading the charge. So I think with, that, with their vote of confidence that Nequim Basin and the Vaca Muerta shale, the dead cow shale, is, is really set to rise over the next few years. Not, definitely not immediately, though. Yeah. I, well, when I look at this, I, it's important to realize how much shale resources is out in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the outside of the United States, there's 287 billion barrels of resources. If you look at what the US, U.S. has, that's 58 billion uh, in resources. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that it just shows right now we're talking about us being a swing-producing country, and we're producing so much natural gas that we can export to the rest of the world. Yeah. Everybody else has these shell assets. It just shows that how much oil is actually out there. You know, this really just crushes the old peak oil theory, yeah. really. And if you look at natural gas, it's even bigger. There, 90% of all shell resources are outside the United States. So it shows that these countries really can, if they can tackle a lot of the issues that you were talking about, really can can start putting so much right. energy onto the market. So it's, I think it's really interesting just to see how much is already out there. And then just showing, like Argentina, actually moving and getting a lot of those issues in place where they can actually start extracting and getting tests. And what it really comes down to is, is drilling wells, understanding the geology, and then putting a lot of that information together. We've been drilling uh, hydraulic fracturing for a lot of long time, horizontally drilling for a long time. But when we started actually getting uh, economic value from sh- some of our shell plays was in the early 2000s. We didn't see this shell revolution. We weren't talking about... It started about, in the 60s when we started drilling for sh- in shell like this with the fracking. Yeah, but when we were actually doing it economically right. in, the t- in the 2000s, we weren't expecting it to be this big. And what it took was us going and sampling wells, getting the data together, and then spreading from there and moving into different shell plays. So it's Nice that other countries are finally actually tab- uh, tackling some of these uh, these areas and actually getting test wells because that's really the first step. The infrastructure and investment will start coming from there. And one of the companies that's kind of the funnel for all this data has been Core Labs, a company that we visited, a company that the Motley Fool follows. Uh, they've been able to work with pretty much every oil and gas company around the world. Mm-hmm. They're in Argentina, they're in China, doing work, testing, uh, analyzing the reservoirs, and they, they own that IP. And so when, when, when these fields are being tapped by, by newcomers, they turn to CORE and, and ask, what have the, the incumbents been, no, been mm-hmm. learning and, and deciding to do? And, and then they license out that data. Yeah, and when we talked to them, they've been doing studies uh, for Chinese uh, geology mm-hmm. for over five years now. So they're, you know, I think they're a lot further along than people really uh, are giving other countries credit for. So we'll see yeah. in the next few years what it really takes off. Agreed. Lord knows China needs all that oil and oh, gas. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. No uh, kidding. Let's, let's move to the stock list. Okay. Uh, let's see. Who's up first? I'll, give, I'll, I'll hit you up. All right. Let me have it. 
All right, so I'm going to give you uh, five states, and okay. I want you to pick three of these. And the three that you're picking are what states had the fastest-growing economies last year between Texas, Wyoming, Oklahoma, North Dakota, West Virginia. Obviously, we're talking about this because a lot of those states are big energy producers. Right. So I just need the top three from you. Okay. Um, I'm going to say all but... West Virginia, even though I'm hesitant because they have been picking up natural gas production, and the Marcellus Shale there. So this is also 2013 fastest growing. Fastest growing. North Dakota, I'll say North Dakota, Wyoming, and I'm going to reverse course and say West Virginia since we're doing fastest growing, since it probably wasn't starting from quite the same base as Texas. Mm -hmm. So North Dakota. North Dakota, Wyoming, and West Virginia. That's actually correct. Yes. Uh, North Dakota grew at 9.7%. Um, this is obviously all from the, the Bakken oil right. boom, 2.9% unemployment. However, you look at Wyoming, they had a lot of growth last year, 7.6%. Unemployment's not great. The reason they, they had so much growth is the year before, they had the biggest contraction in the nation. So they were finally getting back on board. And West Virginia, although coal's been getting crushed, natural gas is starting to pick up there, yes, so they're is. seeing a lot of growth. So West Virginia grew up 5.1% uh, last year. So, right on. Uh, pretty, pretty good, I thought, for and, sure. And you're Texas is Texas. no slouch. Yeah, I mean, they, they're, they're, they're top 10. Their they're GDP 10. Is, is, is huge because of oil, but I, I understood that they've been doing it for a couple of years now, so that's why I, tra I transferred West Virginia Smart to man. slot. Smart man. It's all in the wording of the question. Fastest <laughs> instead of highest growth. Um, all right, my question to you. Which metal has had the best start to 2014? We're having a commodities-based uh, show here today, so I figure we'll go which metal has had the best start to 2014 as far as price appreciation? Mm -hmm. Silver, A. Copper, B. Gold, C. And aluminum, or aluminum, as they say outside of the United States. Aluminum, D. That is a, that is a tough question. I'm going to go with either copper or aluminum. I'm probably going to pick aluminum just because the amount of cars that have been rolling off the line. Uh, there's been a lot of growth there, so I'm going to go with aluminum. Two for two today. Uh, aluminum around eight and a half to nine percent appreciation this year in Good price. Good news for Alcoa. Great news for Alcoa, which is why they had a, a solid earnings yesterday. They, they beat uh, their earnings estimates. Yep, I haven't had a chance to run through it completely, but the headline news out of that company is. It's still doing very well uh, ever since they, they started the restructuring over there. Uh, gold and silver, both tracking very closely to each other, around 6-7% each. Uh, very positive news for the miners in those sectors that have just taken billions of dollars in write-downs and had to shel shelter projects. Um, copper, actually, near break-even, just down one half to 1% this year. Um, that's nice to see for them because our Freeport McMoran especially diversified away from copper into oil and gas because copper was getting hurt so much. And that reverses right back to the iron ore problem with China. The growth just isn't there. Copper wiring, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, although they are involved in automotive sector, aluminum is just becoming a big factor in there. You saw Ford's F-150 with the aluminum frame yep. stealing market share from steel. Also another reason why iron ore prices might be being hurt, and that's just beginning of that trend, so we'll continue Yeah, I mean, there's that. a lot of fuel standards being uh, that a lot of countries are requiring, mm -hmm. so you're going to see aluminum frame bodies for yeah. a long time. The U.S. Is isn't the only one requiring higher Absolutely. Gas it's going to bode well for, for aluminum, I hope, for, for quite a while. Agreed. Let's, uh, we got a question today. So what's uh, 
hit this question mailbag. in our mailbag. Also, if you have any questions, hit us up at energy at fool.com or you can tweet us at TMF Energy. So be sure to send any questions you have. Today we got one from Keith Westfall. His question is, in your opinion, are domestic E&P, which are exploration and production companies, overvalued? Uh, you know, this is a good question it because good you question. saw EOG Resources, one of the best players in the Eagle Ford. They're up 63% over the last year. They're trading at 26 times earnings. Uh, Continental Resources up 69%, 33 times earnings. And you also have Pioneer Natural Resources, one of the big players that we've been talking about. They're up 45%. You know, you saw a lot of investment dollars follow oil assets. People wanted out of natural gas when mm-hmm. prices dropped. So people with oily assets really did well over the last few years. So, you know, in your opinion, yeah, there's a lot of growth here. Are they overvalued? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you look at uh, EMP, it's a good designation. It's the upstream portion of the energy sector as opposed to the Exxon Mobiles and Shells and BPs that are integrated. A little bit hampered depending on which way the market's going if oil prices are high. The refining sectors suffer. Oil prices are low. Gas mm-hmm. prices are high. EMP suffers, but the refining catches up. So they're not going to have the growth that we've seen of a strictly EMP company here in the U.S., but I don't know if they're exactly overvalued because we talked earlier that the supply and demand is so tightly balanced right now that if they keep producing at these rates, I think the valuations are warranted. You're talking about EOG growing their reserves in production over 30% a year. That's, that's just fantastic. Yeah, and you look at Continental right along the same track and, and smaller companies like a Kodiak Oil & Gas following those two companies' blueprints and trying to replicate those almost to a T. So I don't think that they're necessarily overvalued. I think you need to look at asset bases, obviously, uh, play a big factor here. You've seen the Utica kind of flounder a little bit on the natural gas side because it's been a bit more uh, oily or more liquid-based than people thought. So you want to make sure that they're in the right basin, which obviously Continental and EOG are. Um, so right now, in my mind, EMPs, United States-based EMPs at least, are not mm-hmm. overvalued just because apparently we've got an, another 15, 20-year runway where we're going to continue growing. Yeah, I think people look at the earnings multiples and, and say, yeah, that looks expensive. Yeah. But, you know, like you just mentioned, these companies are getting more technology and getting smarter about how they're drilling. And they're putting reserves on their books, right. which, yeah. which shows that they have just this much more to drill. Oil price is high. I think they can continue to outperform, and they've been showing that they can do that. Um, what I would also look for in other exploration production companies is companies that have been discounted because they have assets either internationally right, in, yeah. in some areas that uh, are, are pretty hotbeds or companies that have still have natural gas that they're slowly moving away. And one of those companies is Devon Energy. You know, they put a deal together a week ago, sold off a billion dollars in natural gas assets, and now they're really focusing on just growing their oil production. So I see a company like that that has a lot of growth. I think they're following in EOG's footsteps. You know, Mark Papa at EOG was really on board saying, you know, there's so much natural gas being produced in 2007, 2008. Let's move away from natural gas and go towards oil. And that's paid off for them. And that's why they've done so well for the last few years. And I think companies are finally realizing that oil is the game to be in. Natural gas, yeah, it will will return at some time. But uh, these oil companies, I think, are, are... doing very well, and I don't. I wouldn't be shy away from investing in them. Yeah, you see a lot of the companies like Devon and, uh, and Apache and other companies selling their non-core assets. A lot of people got worried that they were too big, mm-hmm. but obviously oil and gas is very popular right now. Prices are very nice for M&A deals, so they're able to sell these assets at a nice valuation, return some of that money to shareholders, but pour a lot of it back into the business because there is such tremendous growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we're both in agreement that as long as you get the right players, uh, you know, obviously the, these high metrics 
might scare you away, but... And all three of those companies we mentioned, and Devon, have great balance sheets, so yep. they can, you know, if oil prices did drop, they can still extract their resources, and long-term, I think that's where you always win. The one thing you mentioned was the reserve replacement. We talk about one in that over 100%. That's... Uh, the production that you're selling, mm-hmm. you want your your new reserves to re- automatically replace that and then some. So you're seeing these companies do that uh, and you're seeing the big companies struggle to keep that 100% mark. So that's one thing that investors in oil and gas are going to want to pay attention to when you look at their balance sheet as well. Absolutely. That's Asset a great base. that's a great message, yeah. metric to always look at. Yep. Just make sure the company is not shrinking. Exactly. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's get into the tweets. tweets. Yeah. So instead of looking at uh, TMF Energy on Twitter, we're looking at other tweets that we've seen out there. And uh, right off the bat, from the Oil and Gas Financial Journal, oil, uh, at OGJ Online, a little tongue twister there, Golden Pass files former FERC application for LNG project. I'm going to emphasize the N on LNG because we did have a, a listener email in saying it thought it was L ampersand G. Yeah, so, so it's, liquefied natural gas that's right. is, is so what it's, we're there's talking There's a designation about. there. Um, Obviously, LNG exportation is a big deal. Sabine Pass is becoming to LNG what Vegas is to gambling and what New York City is to finance right now. You've got Chenier Energy with the big plan up there, mm-hmm. probably going to come online in 2015 if they held true to their word. Not the whole thing, but the first couple trains, which are fully subscribed. Now you've got Qatar Petroleum and ExxonMobil mm-hmm. teaming up to put this together. And just like Chenier Energy, this was an import facility back when Greenspan was yep. in off, was at the Fed. Uh, and uh, and uh, now we have export facilities because obviously mm-hmm. we didn't need to import any natural gas because we're producing more than anybody. Yeah, I think, th- I think that's what the question really came back to is. And I think what we need to do too is just kind of step back and say, you know, why are we exporting LNG, mm-hmm. liquefied natural gas? And, you know, where did we come from? And, you know, like you mentioned, 10 years ago or so, we were building import facilities because natural gas prices were so high. We didn't, we weren't extracting mm-hmm. as much as we thought. So we had a lot of money, billions of dollars poured into import facilities. Once we started really extracting the shell, the shell natural gas, prices started plummeting. It just didn't make sense yeah. to actually import it anymore. So then people started, Chenier was one of the first to actually turn the facility that they were building into an export facility. And basically what they're doing now is they're getting the, the natural gas Pipelining into these export areas, usually down in, in the Louisiana coast right now, right. and also they'll be moving into the Texas uh, Houston Ship Channel area. And what they're doing there, they put into a cryogenic facility, freeze the gas, put it on a ship, and move it overseas. And why this is why this is uh, making so much sense? Natural gas, if you look at it, unlike oil, is a regionally priced commodity. Mm-hmm. So your pricing in United States is going to be far different than pricing overseas far lower as we as we speak right now and that's why yeah. that's why we are exporting it's because we're you know it costs us you know we're, we're producing it at around two dollars some of the better producers two dollars two dollars and fifty cents uh, per thousand cubic feet and if you look into some of these international markets there could be tied to oil so you could sell this uh, lng into asia for 14 15 dollars mm-hmm. into europe for seven or eight dollars so there's a lot of margin there and that's why we're trying to build these facilities so fast is because we are the only ones that can produce natural gas shale. We can produce it at low levels. So we have oversupply. Why not move it to these high-end markets? I agree. And you look at uh, Chenier Energy Sabine Pass, not importing a single cubic feet of natural gas, now about to export uh, a significant amount, mm-hmm. a couple percentage points of our entire natural production. Uh, and so now Golden Pass, we're talking about a $10 billion investment over five years. 
going to make the, the final decision next year. So they're just still in the approval phase. But $10 billion over five years to export that natural gas. That's not money. pocket change. A lot of money there. We'll see. Exxon's got it, but uh, we'll see if it actually moves forward. Our final tweet, kind of interesting. It's been something that I've looked at before. But then I saw this tweet coming from at CBC Tech Sci. That's the CBC Tech and Science portion of CBC News up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, Albert Einstein said back in 1941, remove the bee from the earth, and at the same time you remove at least 100,000 plants that will not survive. He said after the last bee falls, four years and we're gone. Now we're looking at bees being affected by pesticides, losing their way, not being able to find food. They do an in- intricate dance at the hive to show, pe- to show the other bees where to go, and they're just not capable of that once they interact with certain pesticides. And a lot of those are treating corn, uh, and, and canola and turning those into, obviously, uh, high fructose corn syrup, canola oil, two products that are used very heavily in North America. 90% of U.S. corn was treated in 2012 with pesticides. Reportedly, that's pretty hard to d- decide and, and analyze, but reportedly 90% of the corn grown in the United States was treated with pesticides. And I think it reverses back to the GMO debate, the genetically modified seed debate. A lot of people are outspoken about that, but... They're genetically modifying these seeds to resist pest, hence relegating pesticides useless. So there's two sides to this debate, and uh, I don't want to lose all my bees. No, and I don't think we, with the Internet and think of things and everything, I don't think we can create enough drone bees to start populating all <laughs> the crops either. Uh, no, I think it is an interesting <laughs> debate because, as it's been shown, these studies are showing that pesticides are impairing a lot of these, mm-hmm. uh, these honeybees um, or bumblebees. Honeybees aren't as affected right. uh, from them, but you know this still does bring up the point. Yeah, GMOs. You have to kind of look more into more into the issue than just seeing genetically modified organisms, mm-hmm. because in nature, a lot of plant life is engineered uh, genetically engineered just through itself, just just, just through its yeah. uh, its operations and keeps adapting. And human beings and everybody. Any living organism always is adapting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of these companies are kind of getting a bad rap for some of their, their GMO um, engineering because they're doing things that are already happening in nature and just yep. making sure that they are actually staying the course and you're getting plants that are staying at the same level. So you're not getting plants that are going to be so much worse or better. They're trying to make things uh, maintained throughout. So I think it's just a, a point that you're going to have to look more into the GMO debate, and it's something that you should be focusing on. If pesticides are really already wiping out the, the bees, we already have such a shortage of bees. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I haven't been stung I, by one in a while. Have you? I, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> I've and, been and, stung by them every summer as a kid. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned starting the, the segment off with Albert Einstein yeah. uh, predicting that, that's a guy that I would tend to listen to. Yeah, something about physics and E equals MC squared and theory of relativity. I don't remember it all. Yeah, I don't remember it, but uh, I think that was pretty important. <laughs> yeah, something like that. If his B theory proves prescient, then we're all kind of screwed. Hopefully not. Let's hope not. Let's hope we... Uh, Drone bees, though. That's an interesting topic. Maybe the fool can invest in a company that manufactures... Low-cost sensors are out there. That's we'll it. see if we can get the technology. <laughs> sure knows there's a lot of information about that on thefool.com. Absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, I think we covered... Pretty much everything we could cover today. We got a lot Oil, of materials. LNG, iron ore, technology, technology, bees, Einstein, physics. What else? World Cup. Bees. Bees. The bees knees. 
That's what you can get at fool.com, the bee's knees. Also, <laughs> TMF Energy on Twitter. Yep. Energy, energy at, fool.com. at fool.com. Questions, keep them coming. They've been great over the past couple weeks. For Joel, I'm Taylor. Fool on.